here from political imagination and i want to introduce us to one of the in my opinion greatest radio broadcasters of all time who sadly passed away quite a few years ago his name is studs turkle he wrote a book right at the end of his life called hope dies last which is the title of this podcast this recording that you're about to listen to was made in 2003 when Studs was 91 years old and he was out publicising his new book and he talks about his life, the book itself and socialism in general, I think. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Hope dies last. Good afternoon and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley, brought to you from Morris Daly Auditorium at San Jose State University. My name is Cindy Chavez, San Jose Council Member for District 3 and your chair for this afternoon. At this time, we would like to welcome listeners of KMTT-FM 103.7 in Seattle, Washington, one of more than 200 radio stations joining us for America's longest-running radio network. It is my pleasure to introduce Studs Turkal, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of Hope Dies Last, Keeping the Faith in Difficult Times. Hailed as one of the greatest oral historians of our times, Studs Turkal has interviewed everyone from politicians to activists, from farmers to ex-Klu Klux Klan members. In fact, he has con conducted over 9,000 interviews, and despite contrasting socioeconomic backgrounds and beliefs that many of these people have, he has never passed judgment on anyone and has always maintained and given everyone an equal level of respect and dignity. Not only has Mr. Turkel captured some of the most difficult and turbulent times in our history, but he has also lived through them. Studs attended the University of Chicago where he received a degree in law. He went on to pursue a radio career taking a job producing shows for the WPA Writers Project and became involved in the Chicago Repertory Theater. In the 1940s, Studs was a familiar voice on the radio as a news commentator and disc jockey. He also starred in his own television comedy called Studs Place with Chet Robel and Beverly Younger but the show was later canceled after being investigated by Joseph McCarthy and the House on Un-American Activities Commission for his refusal to provide evidence of left-wing activities. Studs was able to find employment with the Chicago Sunday Times where he wrote a regular jazz column and later started a daily talk show on WFMT in Chicago called The Studs Turkel Almanac and The Studs Turkel Show. His greatest works as an oral historian include My American Century, Working, 
people talking about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do, and the good war and oral history of World War II, which he won the coveted Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 1977, was a recipient of the Presidential National Humanities Medal. We are also joined by Mitch Berman, director of the Center for Literary Arts, editor-in-chief of Hyper Hyper, the hypermedia magazine of the arts, and moderator for this afternoon's program. Mitch is the author of several books, including the Pulitzer Prize nominee, Time Capsule, and his widely published short fiction has been nominated for, um, for Pushcart Prizes. Mitch also teaches creative writing at San Jose State University. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Studs Terkel and Mitch Berman. Thank you very much, Cindy. Um, Studs, one of your books is entitled My American Century, and at this point it's no exaggeration. Um, for me, it's not only remarkable that a 91-year-old would write such a major new work as the work you've just published, Hope Dies Last, but most amazingly to me is that you would choose at this stage of your career to write First a book of all, about I have hope. To make a confession. I don't hear a word that's being said. <laughs> I do, part of it. I'm deaf as a post. And sometimes that comes in handy, see? Now, I'm going to make out what Mitch Berman is saying. I know what Councilwoman Chavez said, because I knew what she was going to say in advance, and it was very moving. I liked her style. I like Mitch's style, too. But I can't hear very well. And sometimes it comes in handy. For example, during our recent adventure in Iraq, that great triumph of our president, you know, you heard the, you heard the phrase embedded journalists, embedded. But I have difficulty, so it came out with embed with journalists. <laughs> so you see, sometimes having a speech Sometimes having a speech impairment works out to your advantage. Now, before you say another, another question you're going to ask, and I'll, I'll understand, Mitch, I know I'll be, especially if it's written out, but I have to make confession. I am a fellow alumnus of John Ashcroft, our Attorney General. That is, we both attended that Institute of Higher Learning, the University of Chicago Law School. But he followed me by about 30 years or so, since I am 91. See, I was born the year the Titanic went down and I came up. <laughs> and so he's 30 years younger than me in attending University of Chicago Law School. But I maintain he is much older than I am, because I figured it out. John Ashcroft is at least 350 years old. You know why? Those of you who know the play by Arthur Miller, The Crucible, remember The Crucible, the play that dealt with the New Salem witch hunts in the late 1600s? Well, John Ashcroft was in that play. It was an earlier, it was his reincarnation, it was his earlier incarnation. He was the Reverend Paris, 
the visiting evangelist and says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And remember, and he got those hysterical young girls to identify the little old women as witches. And of course, they were hanged, you see, because they were consorting with the devil. So therefore, you see, he is 350 years old, the second oldest man who ever lived next to Methuselah. And so that's part of my confession. And now, Mitch, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, that's the question. That's oh, the here it the is. Question. It's a good one, by the way. What inspired you at this stage of your life to write about hope? That's an awfully good question. Because I was a little crazy, I think. You see, all the books I've done in the past, you start naming them, working then is there, deals with what is it like to be a certain person, say a school teacher. What is the life of a day in a school teacher? Or what about a waitress? Or what about a spot welder? Or what about a small manager or a shopkeeper? Or a housewife? See, all visceral stuff. A World War II book, The Good War, which is in quotes because no war is good. But nonetheless, that was the war against Hitler and fascism. What was it like? to be a mama's boy in a landing craft about to hit the shores of Normandy in 44? Or what was it like to be a woman who has a job for the first time in her life, ironically enough, thanks to the war? Or the Depression, the Great American Depression, hard times, which many of the older people seem to have forgotten, the younger people have been told about. See, I, we're suffering from what I call a, a national Alzheimer's disease. It's as though there were no past. There was a Great Depression. And that's when free enterprise, we call the free market today, fell on its fanny. You know that. There was a big crash, a Wall Street crash in 1929. Ended the boom following World War I. And then they came on their hands and knees, the big boys, the free market, to the government, to FDR, and said, please help us out. And there were regulations that was passed. So one of the irony is, they were the daddies and granddaddies of those who most condemn big government today when it comes to health and education and welfare, not the Pentagon. So you see, this book dealt with something more abstract, hope. But before that, an example of what it is to be another person. In working, for example, this sometimes you have to try to be the other person. So someone said, have you interviewed a gas meter reader? You know what a gas meter reader is, don't you? Come, comes to your house with a flashlight, goes in the basement. So I interviewed this gas meter reader. And I says, tell me about your day. You, what's the day? He says, well, I'll tell you, it's mostly dogs and women. <laughs> and then I realize as he's talking, the first is the reality, the second, the fantasy. So I, I say to him, well, let's talk about the dogs first. He says, the dogs, you know who the worst are? The Pekingese pups, the little poodles. They gnash at my pants, they tear up my pants, they rip at my leg, and I want to use my flashlight as a weapon to protect me. And then as the lady of the house is going down the stairs, I follow her, and there's a little dog, and I give it a whack to make up for the one I missed in the other house. I said, now, okay, let's talk about women. 
He said, no, well, nothing. You understand, nothing has happened, but in my imagination. For example, he describes a suburb, a North Shore suburb in Chicago, and it's nice. And he says, and the lady of the house is very pretty, and she's lying out in the patio, it's the summertime, on her stomach on a blanket, getting the sun. And she's in a bikini, and the bra is unbuttoned because she wants the sun to shine fully on her back. So what I do is I creep up very, very softly. And when I'm right next to her, I holler, gas man, and she turns around. <laughs> and, and, and then he says, I get bowled out an awful lot. But, but. It makes the day go faster. <laughs> In a sense, that's what much, much of work is, making the day go faster. So now we come back, roundabout white answering the question, hope. We live in a strange, bewildering time. And those people who are the heroes of this book are those we call activists down through the years, where they were abolitionists in slavery days, where they were Tom Paine or Sam Adams and the American Revolutionary days. You know, most of America at the time, or certainly much of it, really didn't, to be face the truth, didn't care if there was a king or not, as long as they made a buck or two. But there were certain agitators who thought of a new kind of society, the United States, of, and one of them was Tom Paine. Well, he was an activist. In the 60s, we know, of the African-Americans and the young activists, at first fewer in number, opposing our maladventure in Southeast Asia, and of course the civil rights movement. So this is about those kind of people who were rather heroic in their way and who represented seemingly a minority. Turns out later on, great many felt that way. That's why I refer to them as the prophetic minority. So I thought I would tackle that book and I dedicate the book to a, a southern white couple whom I knew, whom we can talk about later, perhaps. So that's why I did the book, because I think a great many people feel things others may say that may seem unfashionable, and yet feel it's true but are afraid to say it. And I don't mean just because of the incredible Patriot Act of my fellow alumnus, John Ashcraft. I don't mean that alone. I mean, generally, there's this fear of participating. Once you participate in something, it could be a letter to the editor, it could be fighting for uh, stoplights where kids are, it could, be a, it could be a local issue, it could be peace, it could be civil rights, it could be environmental protection. Once you participate in that, something happens to you. You have hope, you're part of something, and most important is you count. Because many of us feel we don't count. That is, there's no point. And that's why we have so little turnouts in contrast to other industrial countries when it comes to elections. So in a sense, the book is about those who imbue us with that which is essential for life, hope. So that's why I got the title. Did I tell you how I got the title? No. Did I mention that? No. Oh, the title came from a farm worker not too far, from Fresno, California, Jesse de la Cruz. And she said, we have a saying in Spanish, esperanza muera ultimo, hope dies last. 
And that's how I got the title. And so that's a roundabout way of answering this question. You know, you talk about our national Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and if there's one person who represents America's memory, it is you. Uh, you remind us of things that we have chosen to forget, like the steelworkers strike in Chicago in 1937. And, remind uh, us of the events that we forget. Right. Well, there, you see, well, this is a question that I sort of answered. You seek to serve as America's memory, reminding us of events of the past we try to forget, the steelworkers' strike of 1937. Well, that's what I mean by a national Alzheimer's disease, where there's no memory. For example, the role unions played in our life. And I got a story to tell you. It's a funny story, but a true one. As you know, I talk a great deal. I talk a lot. And when nobody's around, I talk to myself. <laughs> and I find the audience very appreciative. <laughs> but I, there's this one couple. So I'm known on the street where I live as the old gaffer. They know I've written some books, but they also know me as a guy who talks a lot. Talked, but I can't reach this one couple. And you talk to the steelworkers strike of 1937. That's a famous 1944 strike, which the, uh, Michael Moore talks about this a great deal. He's from Flint, Michigan. A famous strike in which the people who were unorganized sat in a plant for 44 days and 44 nights. They beat Noah in the ark by four days and four nights. And they sat in and finally were recognized. But there's something else. Chicago is the home where the eight-hour day was first espoused, that which we accept for granted. The eight-hour day. People now in other countries speaking of a six-hour day. Well, the eight-hour day was fought in Chicago in 1886. It was known as the Haymarket Affair. And these were German anarchists, mostly, an ex-Confederate soldier named Albert Parsons, who were campaigning for the eight-hour day. There was a meeting. They went home. Somebody threw a bomb. No one knows who to this day. Several policemen were killed, others. There was a trial, and these eight men were put on trial. It was a farce. There was hysteria. And four of them were hanged, hanged fighting for the eight-hour day. So now I want to come back to this couple. So I'm on the street. I wait for a bus. And every day I'm talking to somebody. That I, I wait for a bus because I can't drive a car. Never drove a car in my life. So I take a bus. I also goof up on the tape recorder. I'll tell you about that later. Because uh, I'm very inept mechanically. So I'm waiting for the bus. And generally talk to everybody. But this one couple, and they're very, I call them yuppies. I hate to use that word because most young people are worried about jobs. And they're bewildered and would like to have better work. And they're not. But these are. He's got a Brooks Brothers suit, three-piece. He's got the Wall Street Journal. And his friend is a looker. I mean, she's uh, Neiman Marcus, got the latest Vanity Fair. And I want to get their attention because of my ego, you know. And so they ignore me completely. So this one day, the bus is late. And I'm saying, Labor Day is coming up. That's the last thing I should have said. He looks at me as though he were no old coward looking at a speck of dirt on a thing. And he turns away. And now I'm really hurt, you know. And so now the imp of the perverse has me on the hip. 
I know I want to say something that's going to I says, Labor Day. I know it's going to get them mad. I said, Labor Day, we used to march down State Street, banners flying UAWCIO, which side are you on, solidarity. For, and he turns to me and says, we despise unions. I said, oh, I got a pigeon here. <laughs> no bus. The bus is late and coming. So I turn to him now with my glittering eye. I'm now the ancient mariner. And I, and I say, how many, how many hours a day do you work? And he says, eight. And he says, eight. How come you don't work 18 hours a day? You know why your great-grandparents work 18 hours, you work eight? Because four guys got hanged for you fighting for the eight-hour day. Now I got him pinned against the mailbox. He can't get away. And the bus has not come yet. And, and his friend, his wife, or his girlfriend, she's nervous, she drops Vanity Fair, and I'm very gallant, and I pick up the Vanity Fair, and I give it to her. And now they know what the hell. And then I still got him pinned. How many hours a week do you work? He says, 40. And I, how come you don't work 90 hours a week? Your great-grandparents did because people got their heads busted and blacklisted back in the 30s, fighting for the 40-hour day for you. And then he got on the bus, they rushed on. I never saw him again. But, but, they live in this condominium upscale that faces the bus stop. And I'll bet every morning, she's looking out the window, and he's saying, is that old nut still down there? <laughs> well, now, do you blame him? Do you blame them? They don't know about the past and what happened. So that's part of what I call the National Alzheimer's Disease. So that's what. We have some questions from the audience. Some are long, some are short and sweet. And this question for Studs Terkel is, what question would you ask Governor-elect Arnold Schwarzenegger? What could you ask Governor-elect Schwarzenegger? I don't know how to say this. Keep it clean. You know, I have to preface this by saying, I did a book called The Spectator. Sometimes I wander away from these books because I was a radio interviewer for years, interviewing people of the theater and of movies. And so the book The Spectator, I interviewed with Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and Buster Keaton and early movies, Carol Channing. And Arnold and, Schwarzenegger. And all this. And I put Schwarzenegger in just as a joke. You know, uh, to have him, and I have this interview. And what he's saying is, I want to be number one in muscles. I want to be number one in money. I love America, so I want to be number one. This basically is it. So I thought, in contrast to an actress named Uta Hagen, a very great actress who created the role of Martha in Virginia Woolf, the Edward Albee play, I thought, she speaks of, oh, what is success? His success is being number one. And he goes on in this vein, like, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. And she says, success is being proud of my work, what I do, not necessarily having my name up front. And so I did that as a joke, putting him in. But guess what? I was on these programs with these young couples in the morning, you know, smiling couples. And the, everyone asked about Schwarzenegger. And not one word about Tennessee Williams or, or Arthur Miller. That gives you an idea. So what can I say to him? You're so muscular. I hope the muscles don't ascend to up here, see. I don't know what else, there's one funny thing about this. 
a referendum, by the way, is not a bad thing. A referendum itself is a healthy thing. But it all depends to what end and what cause and how it came to be. Now, we know how this one came to be. A guy with millions started it, and so it came. I'm not defending the former incumbent, God knows. I would say primarily it came out of anger. I don't think it's exactly a pro-Bush thing at all. I think it came out of something else. Uh, well, you, you're, you're the best judges of that than I am. What would I suggest? Maybe to read a book or two. It would be the first. Maybe to read, to read Hope, possibly. I don't know if he'd dig it, but try it. Why not? What's to lose? Another question. How did you get the name Studs? How did I get the name of Studs? I knew that would come up. I wish it were what you think it was. It was and it came about, my name is Louis, L-O-U-I-S. It was 1935, a novel by a Chicago novelist, James T. Farrell, came out called Studs and Lonigan. And I liked that book so much. I carried it, so they called me Studs. And years ago, I wrote a book on jazz back in 1957. Publishes, that's a good name for a, a writer on jazz. So that's how I got the name. But strangely enough, it got me in trouble one day. Not the way I wish it did, no. It got me in trouble one day because I got a letter from a librarian in uh, Georgia. Remember her name, Sylvia Cooper. And she says, I missed your lecture, one such as this. There are author, book author lectures. This one is in Atlanta, and she missed it. I'm sorry I missed it, but I got to tell you about my work. A librarian's job is not the most exciting in the world, but it does have its piquant moments, such as the one I recently experienced. Your book, Working, came out, and I have the commission, the right to buy. So I, I bought several copies for my library. Now, one of the people who works for me is a volunteer for Jerry Falwell. In other words, she spies on me to see that I don't buy what he would call dirty books with has the words in it or ideas. And so one day he comes up to me and says, Miss Cooper, I see that you're buying pornographic literature. And she says, I am? Well, which book was that? I believe it's called Working Studs by Turkle. <laughs> and that, and that's when I knew I had a bestseller. That's how I got the name. You know, you've been called the world's greatest interviewer, and I would like you to talk a little bit about your keys to the way you talk to people. So many different What are people. the keys to the way? There is no one. Oh, what are the keys to the way I talked? There is no one key. I love jazz. A lot has to do with improvisation. I hear about somebody, a friend of mine tells me about someone, or I read a newspaper article about something. One of the best interviews I've ever had is about a former Grand Klegel of the Ku Klux Klan who changed, who was transformed. And I read, he's traveling the country, working for unions for janitors in the company of a black woman named Ann Atwater. His name is C.P. Ellis. Well, that story is a, a one of the most hopeful stories I've ever come across, and it was accidental. It's about the transformation of this man and the understanding of this woman. And I can't, I, it'll take a long time to tell, but it's in a couple of the books. 
and it's about C.P. Ellis. So how I hear about it, someone says to me, and this person finds difficult saying things to me, getting it out. She says, you know who you should see? Florence. She, she lives three houses away. Florence is of the same stratum as this woman. Uh, as far same education or, or lack of it. Uh, husband, the same kind of job, uh, same religion, same beliefs, generally the same kind. But Florence, she's not the principal of the school. Florence has a certain kind of insight, a way of talking that represents that of the others. And she is of the others. So these are the kind of people I look for. Like one of the exciting moments in my life happened during the first book called Division Street America. 1965-66. The tape recorder was still new, and I was interviewing this woman at a public housing project. And to this day, I remember if she was white or black. She was very pretty, and she was light-skinned, perhaps black, I don't And teeth were bad because no money for a dentist. She had three little kids running around the house, about five, six, seven. And I have the tape recorder. She had never been asked about her life before. And she's talking. Now the kids want to hear their mama's voice. I want, and they're jumping around. I say, no, you be quiet, and I'm going to play it back. So I play back the voice of this woman. She'd never heard her voice before. And she says, oh, my God. I said, what is it? And she says, I never knew I felt that way before. Well, that's a fantastic moment. To me, it's bingo. And it's to her, too. In other words, that interview led her to know that there's something she's thinking about she never dreamed she did before. And for me, it was mana from heaven. So that's the kind of stuff that excites me, when sometimes it's revealing to the person. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned I'm very inept. I am. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like I goof up. The tape recorder, you realize there's only one other American whom the tape recorder meant as much as it does to me. You know who that was. <laughs> Richard Nixon, of course. See? See I, so I refer to Richard Nixon and myself as neo-Cartesians. You heard of Descartes. I think, therefore I am. In the case of Dick Nixon and me, it's I tape, therefore I am. <laughs> I, I hope our purposes are somewhat different. But coming back to my... <clears throat> Even though I'm known for the tape recorder, you know, oral history is the oldest form of history in the world, you know. Well, when Alex Haley wrote Roots, first thing he did is go to the land of his ancestors, Gambia, West Africa, and meet the Griots, G-R-I-O-T, who are oral storytellers. That's gone way back. The difference is, in my time, there's a tape recorder. So you hear the actual voices of the people. And so I goof up a lot. I press the wrong button because I'm not good mechanically. So sometimes that person who's just an ordinary person, oh, I don't like the word ordinary, it's too patronizing, a non-celebrated person sees me, a goofball. I'm not Baba Wawa who's coming up there. I'm, I'm just, and he says, look, it's not working. I said, oh, God, I goofed, I forgot to press the on button. And so that person feels pretty good feels needed by me. Now, you know the name Mike Royko? Mike Royko, the Chicago columnist for years. Well, Mike was an old friend of mine, and Mike wrote a column condemning me. He says, 
You son of a bitch, he says. He deliberately does that. I deliberately goof up, he said, to get them to feel good. Till later on, he discovered I am inept. And finally, when he heard a second column, he says, you know what? He is a goofball. He doesn't. So that ineptitude, like my non-hearing, sometimes works as an advantage. And so, where were we? I well, we're, <laughs> we may already have the answer to this audience question for Studsterkow, which was, if we were listening carefully, who was the worst president you ever uh, knew? Who was the what? The worst president of the United States. Well, there you see, the one who is the least known, who's dismissed by the press, his name is Dennis Kucinich. If you know his name, I knew him as the boy mayor of Cleveland 25 years ago. And his story is a tremendous, of course, Neil is the leading Democratic candidate. And naturally, I will back Neil, hopefully, that he'll learn something from Dennis Kucinich. Now, I mentioned his name, very few who reacted, because one out of two of the Americans know his name. He was the boy mayor of Cleveland, who, when Cleveland had municipal light, you know what that is? That's municipally owned gas and light. And it's wonderful, it's working well for the people, much cheaper than the privatized companies. But the, he was the boy mayor, he's very popular, he's on his way up, but the city's in deep, deep trouble, almost bankruptcy because of a debt that his predecessor had committed. And the company said, the big corporation said, don't worry about the dough, you're a popular politician, you'll be governor, no doubt, and probably could have been president by now if he were not Dennis Kucinich. They said, this is all on one condition, that you privatize municipal light, make it privately owned. He said, I can't do that. These are the working people of Cleveland voted for me, and this thing is good for them, I can't. And so they destroyed him. There was a referendum, by the way, he held. And the referendum was two to one in favor of retaining it. So he won that battle, but he lost the war, he was defeated, because his opponent, George Voinovich, who is now the governor, had a personal tragedy. A daughter killed in a crash about 10 days before the election. And Dennis said, there's something more important than politics. I cannot campaign for the rest of the end. So he lost. He's in the wilderness. He's lost. He's forgotten. And then one day, Cleveland Plain Dealer calls up and says, municipal light is more expansive than ever. People love it. It's going, and they realize you're the one who saved it at the expense of your career. So he runs for Congress during the Republican landslide and is elected on the slogan, Light Up Congress. And he's been the head of the Progressive Caucus for years. And he's the one when our appointed chieftain said, preemptive strike, the help of the United Nations. He's the one who said, no. He's the one who said, when sanctions are going on and kids are starving and, and the brute Saddam is not even being hurt at all. No. He's the one when a bill was passed helping the few at the expense of the many tax. No. He's the one who said universal health care, single payer is what we need. He said yes. So that is the man who is my favorite. But I also know the realities. He hasn't the money, he's not known. He has much chance of winning the primary as the Chicago Bears have of winning the Super Bowl, you know. But he is my favorite candidate. And I hope, 
I hope that he imbues that hope and that feeling into Howard Dean. Kucinich's story is a very interesting one, and it's one that you tell in Hope Dies Last. The what? Kucinich's story. Dennis Kucinich's story is in Hope Dies Last. And in Hope Dies Last, you talk about his background, or Kucinich oh, maybe talks the, about his background. Oh, maybe we need to end our thing. Uh, mean, no, do, do we, Kucinich, how much time do we have? I'd like to sign a couple of books, I hope. You know, Kucinich but, lived in a but, car. Because I do want to tell you one story of somebody at the end who ends the book. Kucinich lived in Oh, dire he's poverty. in the book. Yeah, well, Dennis Kucinich is one of the two politicians yeah. I have in the book. I must Sorry add the second person. It's not that I wrote this long before he declared for the presidency. This was written way before. Remember, I knew him 25 years ago. The other one is a Republican from Indiana named Dan Burton, who is for George Bush, friend of Dan Quayle, who was a very good and decent man. And Dennis Burton's story got me because I hate bullies. His father was a bully. His father was horrible, beat him up, beat mother up, arrested many times, was a bully. And then he discovered, you know who else was a bully? John Edgar Hoover. This is a Republican in a certain case. Now, there's a Hoover building. He's, I want his name removed. It's a case involving an informant there's nothing with politics, had to do with the syndicate and the mob. There's an informant working for the FBI who's a, who's a killer, but he informs on people. And he informed on an innocent man who spent 30 years in prison for nothing. And he said, John Edgar, who knew about that and was part of it, he's a bully, as my father was. And so here you have a very honest, he wants the name of who, he's a Republican. Then he also says, I says, you know, and I didn't come. I'm going to be on a program with him soon, by the way. And I shouldn't jump the gun. But I also said, you know, the name bully has been applied to other people as well today. And let's talk about that if we can. Because I value you. He happens to be, by the way, a very good and honest man. So nothing to do with his party. But there's some issue, there are key issues. And that is, what is a bully? And that comes to us, of course, too. So, uh, what was I going to say? Something else. I'm, oh, I must, before, I must tell you about Kathy Kelly, but I want to save her for the last. I want to save her for the last. You know, you've described your long career as a series of fortuitous accidents. Uh, one of those accidents was having his t your TV show canceled, Studster. Give me that again. Uh, due to the blacklist and how that made you and change your TV careers. TV canceled. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't know. In the beginning, I don't know how to put this. I was hot stuff. <laughs> that, that is, TV, TV was new. TV was only 6 to 10 at night. And there were three Chicago programs that were considered classics. This is 1949, 1950. One was Dave Garraway at large, for you who don't know. Dave Garraway, later on, went to New York and was the first, was the most famous face in the world at one time. He was the first face ever seen on daytime TV. The program was called Today, and it opened in 1949 with Dave Garraway first. That was one, he's from Chicago. Second was a great puppeteer named Kukra, uh, it was called Kukra, Fran, and Ollie, and it was a wonderful, the third was my program. 
all three of us were improvised, the way I'm doing now, with Jazzy. And I was considered hot stuff. And they got Mike Wallace to go to New York, and I was being courted. But McCarthy time came into being. And there were all kinds of petitions. And I say, I never met a petition I didn't like. And so I signed all kinds of petitions, anti-Jim Crow, anti-poll tax, anti-lynching, and they come, and these institutions that got these petitions are on now the attorney generals, like John Ashcroft, attorney generals, subversive lists. And so a guy from New York comes and says, you're hot property. Now, did you sign these things? I says, yeah. Well, don't you know that communists are behind those things? That was the word that was used then and to stop conversation. And I said, suppose now I get, I, at times I get kind of cute. And so I said, suppose communists come out against cancer. Do we have to come out for cancer? You know, and he said, that is not very funny. And so then he said, you got to stand up and be counted. So I stood up. He says, sit down. That's not very funny either. You know? <laughs> so finally, you realize I'm clowning around. I like to clown around. When things are, when things are goofy, as they are, I like to clown around. And then he says, there's one way out. Why don't you say you were dumb, you were stupid, you were duped by the comma, you didn't mean it. I says, but I did mean it. And to this day, people say, oh, stud, you were so heroic. I wasn't a rock at all. I was, forgive the expression, I was, I was, I was scared, crapless, you know, except that my ego was at stake. It was my ego. I'm not dumb. That's what it was. And so I'm talking really about self-esteem, basically. And the book is about self-esteem, basically, is when you do say no to something, that is it. Now, here's where Mahalia Jackson comes in. I was also a disc jockey, in which I played opera records and jazz and folk. And I heard this record by a singer named Mahalia Jackson, Move On Up a Little Higher, an old 78 RPM. And I used to play a regular. I was the white disc jockey who played Mahalia. And she gives me credit too much, you know, for having let white America know about her. At least she says that. So I'm blacklisted now. And Mahalia's internationally known. And CBS hires her to have a, a network radio show. She says, on one condition, that Studs Turk will be the host. And they say, oh my God, no. Then they say, okay. And so they do it. So we, it's a very easy show to do. It has a live audience, and I warm up the audience, and we ad-lib. And one day, another guy comes in from New York, CBS this time. He's got a sheet of paper. He says, would you mind signing this? And it's a loyalty oath. Are you? I said, well, of course I won't. I don't believe in that. So our voices are being raised back and forth as Mahalia's going to the piano to rehearse. And Mahalia hears that. She knew all about me. She used to say, Studs, you got such a big mouth, you should have been a preacher, you know. Said, and so she says, is that what I think it is, baby? She knew I says, yeah. Are you going to sign it? I says, no. Okay, let's rehearse. And he says, pardon me, Miss Jackson, but Mr. Turkle has to sign it because it's come from New York. And that's what Mahalia said. If they fire studs, tell them to find another Mahalia. And you know what happened? Nothing. He disappeared. He vanished. The show went on. She said no. And she showed more guts and more Americanism and more hope and self-esteem 
than General Sarnoff, William Paley, and all the agencies put together. And that, in a sense, what the book is all about. So that's it. So we're on our way. So shall we? Our audience. Oh, Kathy Kelly, one last story. Can I do this one last story? And then you promise to hang around uh, so I can sign a book or two? All right. It ends with a woman named Kathy Kelly, called the Pilgrim. She, uh, Kathy is about 85 pounds, and she almost won the Nobel Peace Prize. By the way, a, rem a remarkable woman, a wonderful woman won it. This Iranian woman, Miss Abadi, won it. And she deserved it. And by the way, she knows Kathy Kelly. And Kathy Kelly knows her. And Kathy's been up for it several times. Kathy heads a group called Voices of the Wilderness. And it's originally a Catholic group. You heard of Dorothy Day? She's a disciple of Dorothy Day. When Dorothy Day would get arrested many times in the past, they why are you doing this? She says, I'm working toward a world in which it will be easier for people to behave decently, which is about the best way I could think. When this is Kathy. So one day, Kathy goes to one of these missile sites. You know, we have thousands of missile sites and many places where corn, where corn was planted and corn grew. So Kathy goes to the missile sites to start growing some corn and also putting up a sign, we shall study war no more, Isaiah. And she calls up the authorities because she's violating a law. She cut through the barbed wire and is planting corn. Well, along comes the arsenal of weapons. And here's 85 pounds of Kathy Kelly sitting on the missile site. And the boy says, well, the personnel of that, you leave with hands raised and kneel and be handcuffed, and Kathy was. And now a young soldier comes at her, a kid about 19 years old from the truck. And he's trembling because Kathy is the terrorist. Kathy's the enemy, you know, here's 85. And she's looking at him and she says, you know what I'm doing? He's, what, ma'am? He's got a gun pointed at her head. She says, I am praying for corn to grow. Aren't, wouldn't you want corn to grow? And the kid says, yes, ma'am. Will you pray with me for the corn to grow? He says, yes, ma'am. And they have this prayer that she has in the book. And then the kid says to her, the gun, the gun still pointed at her head, says, ma'am, are you thirsty? She says, oh, God, yes, I am. Well, he puts his gun down, which I'm sure is a violation. He takes his canteen out and he says, ma'am, would you, would you put your head back a little? And he pours the canteen of the water into her mouth. And then this is the kid. This is the kid you see in the headlines is in Iraq. That's the same kid, you see. What are we doing to this kid? You see, this is the point. He's a wonderful kid, as they are in Iraq. So it's not them when the administration says, we're, we're, we're against the boys. On the contrary, we're for them. And so this is the kid. And so she ends the book by saying, I hope I haven't been. He was in court, and he saw me. He began to tremble. He thought I would tell the story. Of course, I didn't. I winked at him. But I hope he forgives me. If he reads your book, and I'm telling him the story, Studs, I hope he forgives me. So Kathy Kelly, in a sense, is what the book is all about, too. That's it, I think. And thank you. Studs Turkel is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning <clears throat> History of the World War II, The Good War, uh, Oral History of World War II. And um, 
uh, one of our members of our audience today wants to know if the war in Iraq is a good war. In one Iraq, good war. Now, you know it's not. A good, by the way, the word good war is in quotes, I should point out. That was at my wife's insistence. No war is good. The adjective down, however, World War II is the one referred to as the good war that was, unfortunately, necessary war against fascism and Hitler. Is the one Iraq a good war? I think it's a lousy adventure, just as the adventure in Vietnam was a lousy adventure. We have to know more how people live and what they're about. And it's time, and I think a great many people feel this and are afraid to say it. For one reason or another, you're not patriotic. What is patriotic means to speak out? That's what the whole idea of America was about. I got a Tom, I'll end with this Tom, I always carry this around. This is Thomas Paine. And here's the thing, I gotta read this. And it'll make me seem academic. If one can only find it. I'm like W.C. Fields here, looking for things and want to come up with a ticket for a short beer. Here, here it is. This is Thomas Paine in 1791. And he's saying, freedom. He's talking about a new country called the United States of America. There's nothing quite like it. And he says, freedom had been hunted round the globe. Reason was considered as rebellion. And the slavery of fear made people afraid to think. And he underlines the word think. And, but such is the irresistible nature of truth that all it asks, all it wants, is the liberty of appearing. In such a situation, man becomes what he ought to be. He sees his species not with the inhuman idea of a natural enemy, as we do enemies all around, but as kindred. As, that's what the United Nations is all about. In a sense, what was true in 1791 is triply true in the year 2003. Thank you very much. We have time for, we have time for a couple more yeah, questions. Yeah, I think we should be running out. Oh, go ahead. I think we're running out of steam. <laughs> um, the audience, a member of the audience, wants to know, and Thomas Paine puts me in mind of this too, how much involvement should the government have in the day-to-day -day lives of common folks? What do you believe the government should do for people? The author of Hard Times, Studs Terkel. It's what the government should do for people. We are the government. What should the government do for us? We are the government. I mean, there's a... There's a Frances Moore LaPay in this book, she went diet for a small planet. She says, we are hope, the hope is us. So it's what we do, like showing up at the election and voting and calling and saying no when no should be said or appearing at certain things. That's what we do, not what the government do for us. We are the government, really. I think that's it. Let's call it, let's call it because it will go forever. I think that's it. We're radio. on a radio broadcast. Oh, radio. I'm to try to I love radio. You to, we're on radio. And oh, you want to ask about radio? We have a few more minutes to go. And I wanted to ask you one last question, yeah, if I may. One, okay. One, no, one last question. But it's a nice broad one. One last <laughs> question before I pass out. All right. Sorry, studs. What's the last question? Well, from your teens to the early 20s, your family ran the Wells Grand Hotel 
a Chicago boarding house that you've credited as being one of the places, hanging out in the lobby, listening to the people who came there, one of the places that gave you a start to listening to people. And I wanted you to sort of paint a picture and take us back oh, to you well, as a boy I was, in the I Wells was Grand raised Hotel. in a men's hotel my mother ran in Chicago. And it was quite a remarkable place. That hotel, as much as the University of Chicago Law School, more, I'd say, taught me about life. There was argument back and forth. There was debate. There were guys called the Wobblies. You know what they were? Industrial work Wobblies, they were called. And those other guys who were anti-union loved the boss. And they called the Wobblies, IWW, I won't work. You know, that was a or, or the other guys called them scissor bills or capitalists with holes in their pockets. And, but they'd argue back and forth. And most of the guys didn't care. Really, most of the guys just got a kick out of the arguments. They wanted a little shot of whatever it was, a little booze here and there, and see the girls on Sunday in the cribs a block away. But, but, they were, but at the same time, they got a kick out of this. And that's what we have little, too little of. We become the word couch potato is a television word, you know, it wasn't a radio word. See, at radio, at least you had to imagine. But couch potato, it's all fed to you. You are fed the fact that there are imitation lovers making love instead of actual people doing it, you know. There are imitation, there we, we watch the athletes exercise as we become couch potatoes. We watch the wits at work instead of using our own wits. And so, in a sense, this becomes part of the problem. We live surrogate lives instead of our own lives. And hope dies last as we live, we hope, we act. And that, in a sense, is what it's about in a democracy. And I thank you. Thank you, Studs Terkel. That's it. So there we are. Studs Terkel, as I said, one of the great recording interviewers, political interviewers, sociological interviewers, it's hard to say, really, but one of the all-time great radio broadcasters, that's for sure. Let's not forget, in these turbulent times, his words that he finished with, and they are, we live, we hope, we act. Hope to see you soon on the Political Imagination podcast. Bye for now. Ciao, 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 e se io muoio da partigiano